Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Peace of God. I mean, it's a picture of perfect peace. It's a picture of the peace of God that surrounds and envelops God's throne. Uh, it's just an insight that, that the more we worship God, the more we come into His presence the closer we get to that peace. With so much speculation about what the book of Revelation is about, sometimes we can overlook its main and plain message. Written to Christians at a time when declaring yourself to be a Christian could cost you your life, Christ reveals to his church a glimpse of heaven and the throne of God, where despite all the turmoil happening on earth, there is perfect peace and joy. This glimpse of heaven is a beautiful insight into the glory and majesty of God. Tonight, Dr. Corbett is in part three of his series, Understanding Revelation. I want to show you that revelation is indeed a revelation. It can be understood. This revelation of something, which I, I hope you'll, you'll recognize from the opening five words of this book, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we, we look into the book of Revelation, we're going to see and we're going to learn something more about Jesus Christ. And as I said, for me, this is far more than simply pure speculation. And, and I know that the book Revelation is easily the most speculated book in the whole of the Bible. But I think we're going to see that if we can get a glimpse not only of what it's saying, but have a look over the shoulder of the original readers, the original recipients of the book Revelation, we're going to see something absolutely grand. We're going to see something that actually makes a difference in your daily life. Around 2004, I seriously gave the best part of my, my attention to, to unlocking and, and trying to figure out the book of Revelation. This resulted in a book which was published two years later called The Most Embarrassing Book in the Bible. And the reason it got that title was partly inspired by something that C.S. Lewis had said in describing some of these Bible prophecies as the most embarrassing parts of the Bible. And wanting to reply to C.S. Lewis, I called my little book on Matthew chapter 24, which is called the Olivet Discourse, I called that the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. And then when I followed that up with my understanding of the book of Revelation. It was called the most embarrassing book in the Bible. And those books have sold in the tens of thousands and have gone all around the world and have led to me being invited to America and Europe and Africa to be able to present some of the insights that I've received. Now, I don't claim to be original. In fact, I actually point out that what I have discovered in my research is not original at all. In fact, it's quite ancient. What is popularly held today is less than 200 years old. In fact, it came around 1835, and this popularized teaching was not the teaching of the church prior to 1835. There is a way of looking at Revelation which takes the classical principles of understanding the Bible, which includes take each verse in its context, Never just isolate a verse, always take the verse in context. But then that context has to extend also to the, the context of the audience, the context of the times, the context of how language was used in those days. And when you do that, you begin to realize John is a, is a part of the persecution which has begun against the church in AD 64. 
I know that there are people that claim that John wrote this book in AD 95 when the second wave of persecution commenced around about AD 86 under Emperor Domitian, but there's absolutely no grounding for that. In fact, all the evidence points to the AD 65 date. Uh, He's told to measure the temple in Revelation chapter 11. So he's obviously no longer on the island of Patmos. The siege of Jerusalem began in AD 66. So it couldn't have been from AD 66 until the end of the siege in AD 70. And it can't be after AD 70 because the temple was destroyed in AD 70. There was no temple to measure. So Revelation 11 only makes sense if it is before AD 66. And so when you begin to, and and this is important because it helps us to figure out, well, which audience shoulder are we looking over? And if we're looking over the shoulder of the audience that was a part of the first wave of massive persecution, where there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of martyrs put to death under the direction of Caesar Nero, suddenly this begins to take on a whole new meaning. And what we're about to see here in a glimpse of heaven, which is what I've called this this third installment of understanding the book of Revelation. As we look at chapters four and five, I want to I want to help you, as this has helped me, to begin to realize this is this is not just some pie in the sky theological doctrinal sort of conundrum that's only for the the minds of theologians and really it has no impact on our everyday life. I want to show you why I think that way of looking at the book Revelation is completely unhelpful. Uh, and, and I guess I, I start with a story and the story is of a man who had read my book, the most embarrassing book in the Bible, and and uh, having gone to my website at andrewcorbett.net and downloaded the ebook, he he read it and he he contacted me via email and asked if he could come and see me. And so he flew down from Queensland to come to Tasmania and to spend the best part of an afternoon with me. And he quizzed me and took me through the, the questions that he had on Revelation to see if I was still being consistent with what I had written in the book. Now, this is not a not a uh, something that surprises me because many people who have written on the book of Revelation within a very short period of time have to take back or change a lot of their ideas and a lot of what they've already written about the book of Revelation. So that wasn't a surprise to me that he was prepared to do that. But what was a surprise came toward the end of our conversation. As he was sharing with me, he 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 we he exhausted all his questions. And then he asked me whether whether I thought there was anything that I would change, and I said no. I, I'm I'm pretty con- pretty confident that this is this is the intended message of the book Revelation. This is it, and that of course was some twelve years ago when that book was released. And and here today, I still stand by it. I still stand by this is what the book of Revelation is all about. And as this man, whose name was Graham, sat in my office, he he. He looked quite wistful just for a moment, and he said, I, I need you to know this is not just theory for me. Now, he was an older man, not, not an elderly man, but an older man. He said, because I've been diagnosed with cancer, and I know that my time is running short. And if what you've written in here is true, if what you're revealing in this book and claiming that this is what Revelation reveals, 
I have great reason to believe that since I've given my life to Jesus Christ, I will go from this life into the next life and, and spend eternity in eternal bliss with my Savior. And I was actually quite touched. The fact that this man, Graham, could, could see the practical outworking of what we're about to see in the book of Revelation. Now, I know that for the best part of uh, 150 or so years, 160 years or so, that, that people have been conditioned into thinking that the book of Revelation was written to us, to our generation, to us, and that we are to look at Revelation as if we're trying to unlock some of the prophecies of Nostradamus or something like that to find out what the Bible predicts about our future and, and in our day. And I actually think that's an unhelpful way to look at the book Revelation. When it talks about things that which must shortly take place, I take that quite literally. I am not suggesting to anyone that they spiritualize the book or take the book purely symbolically. I'm saying take the symbolism and look at its literal implications. Its literal implications had immediate effect upon the original recipients. The seven churches, the seven congregations of the churches of Turkey, beginning with Ephesus and ending with Laodicea. These churches were subject to some of the most horrendous persecution the Christian church has ever, ever seen. Absolutely horrendous. What John reveals in this book is so comforting and, and he unpacks what was about to take place for them. So what was prophecy for them may not necessarily be prophecy for us, but this applies to anything in Scripture. What was future for the original audience may now be history for those of us today who are reading it. So as we look at this, I want you to see that in all of Scripture, the, the, the one thing that Christians hope for is eternal life, and that eternal life is spent somewhere. And if you were to ask people, what does it mean to be a Christian? What's the main benefit? For for many people, their answer will be, well, you get to go to heaven. And it's it's pretty clear that Jesus Christ said not everybody is going to make it. Not everybody is going to be admitted. Now, this should cause us to go, why? This should cause us to go, well, how do you get admitted to heaven? I, I, I want to be admitted to heaven. How does this work? And, and Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that, that broad is the way to destruction and many there will be that will go down that road straight, as in Bass Strait, it's kind of a confined space, straight, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, Jesus says, eternal life in heaven. And he said, few there will be that find it. Well, I, I want to be a part of the few, and I want to help you to be part of the few as well. So as we look at this, I hope that we, we'll see a couple of things. Firstly, we'll, we'll get a glimpse of heaven, because in all of Scripture, this is the clearest glimpse of heaven we get. And it was revealed to believers at a time when thousands of their brothers and sisters and colleagues were being martyred. There was so much bloodshed against Christians being shed that the church was on the, the risk, the verge of, of extinction. And here John gives one of the most comforting pictures of what awaits those who have already gone on before them. It's a beautiful picture of heaven. But the second thing I want you to see, not because we want to put it in there, and this is an important point, we are not trying to put anything into the book of Revelation. 
But we are trying to get out of the book of Revelation what was put there. So, and, and this is so critical. Sometimes people ask questions when they've read my book and they say, but what about America? Or what about Australia? Or what about the fate of the European Union? And, and I'll, I'll tell you, if, if it's in there, we can get it out. But if, it's, it will, if it was never put in there, no matter how hard you try, you'll never get it out. So what is in the book of Revelation? That's what we're looking at now. And as we look at this, I think your heart will be stirred and comforted. So let's pray. And I want to unpack this for you and hope that your heart is comforted, warmed and encouraged as we look at this. Father, as we open your word now, please, oh God, help us to see what you put there. May we not bring anything to the book and try and put it in and then just pretend that we're getting it out. But Lord, may we look into the mystery of your word and may we get out what was written to these first Christians, but written for us 2,000 years later for today. So Father, may we see a glimpse of heaven in our mind's eye, but may we see why it is so radiant We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, the second thing I really want you to get out of this is heaven is a reflection of the central figure. And God on the throne is the central figure. So let's have a look at this. I'm reading from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, using the English Standard Version, which I strongly recommend. And this is what it says. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood open in heaven, and one seated on the throne. Verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And this is the first point I think we need to see. The very focal point of all of heaven is God's throne. That was the very first thing. It was the central thing that John saw when he was given a revelation into heaven. Now, before we proceed, we we need to understand the language of the book of Revelation and in particular, how the book of Revelation uses numbers. Because numbers are used not just to convey facts, Numbers are used to convey meaning. And so we, we look at the first number that we're going to see, the use of the number seven in the book of Revelation. You see, seven speaks of something. It speaks of being all, complete, perfect. And in a moment, we're about to see that the Holy Spirit is described as seven flames, And we're going to see that that the Lamb, Christ, is described as having seven horns, which speaks of, a horn speaks of strength. So Christ has all strength, seven horns, all strength. This is not to be taken in a wooden literal sense, but it is to be taken literally as it was intended to be taken. The next number that we need to understand as we look at the book of Revelation is the number 12. And this is going to appear In this section, chapters 4 and 5 of the book. 12 speaks of redeemed and leadership. How do we know that? Well, of course, we've got in the Old Testament 12 tribes 
and in the New Testament we've got 12 disciples and both of them were redeemed and yet they weren't redeemed just to be for themselves they were meant to be people who brought others into redemption so there's a leadership attribute here now this is important because now we're about to see 12 and 12 which is 24 mentioned in the book of revelation in the next verse this is revelation chapter 4 and verse 4 around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads so here we have what is 12 and 12 which is described as the 24 elders on thrones elders leaders and so we have the representatives of the old and new covenants 12 from the old 12 from the new they are the redeemed in god's testament and i guess if we were to just consider this word testament the bible that you you perhaps hold on your lap the bible that you take up each day and read is comprised of the old testament and the new testament and a testament contains a covenant a testament is is a record of a covenant and so when we talk about the old testament new testament in one sense you could refer to it as the old covenant and the new covenant but in a strictly literal sense it's the record of those covenants so the old covenant of course has passed away now christ fulfilled the old covenant all of the shadows of the old covenant the animal sacrifices the ceremonies and all those things were fulfilled by christ all of the penalties of the old covenant and this is something that people struggle with today when they look at how harsh the old covenant seemed but those penalties show the gravity of sin by the way many of those penalties were never enacted on they were on the books simply to show just how serious these things were and so when we read that christ bore our sin guilt and shame and took our punishment on the cross they were ultimately put onto christ on the cross so the 24 elders represent the old the old covenant redeemed and the new covenant redeemed we read on in verse 5 from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of god so there's the number seven so when it describes the holy spirit as being seven spirits it's describing the omnipresent the omniscient the omnipotent the eternal holy spirit of god now get the picture here so far we have god the father on the throne surrounded by seven burning torches of fire which are the seven spirits of god in other words the holy spirit envelops encompasses the very throne of the father so when we read seven spirits again don't take it in a wooden literal sense but do take it literally for what it's meant to convey and that is this is the omnipresent holy spirit it goes on in verse 6 and it says this and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal i just want to pause there because around the very throne of god john is looking at something that appeared to be the throne in the midst of a sea it's shimmering it's it's smooth as glass 
like crystal. If, if you've ever been out on the sea, and of course here in Tasmania we live on an island, so finding the sea or the ocean is not hard. We, we don't have to travel far at all. It's nearly always wavy. It's choppy. In fact, on the west coast of Tasmania, it's crazy choppy. It's, you know, fishermen go out in seven metre waves to catch their catch. I, I just find that bizarre. And, and, and I've never quite seen a, a sea described, uh, that I could describe in this way that John has seen, a sea that is as smooth as glass, like crystal, just smooth. And again, it's a word picture because here it says, before the throne, as it were. So we can see John is trying to describe what he's seeing. It's not that the throne of God is literally in the midst, but John is is telling us something. It looked like a sea, but it looked it's not like any sea I've ever seen. It was just smooth like glass, like crystal. And here we have a picture of the peace of God, the peace of God. I mean, it's a picture of perfect peace. It's a picture of the peace of God that surrounds and envelops God's throne. It's just an insight that, that the more we worship God, the more we come into his presence, the closer we get to that peace. If you're looking for peace for your soul, it can only be found if you have firstly been redeemed, then you've become a worshiper. The last part of verse 6 of chapter 4 says this, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Now let's consider the four living creatures. There's another number here that's being used throughout the book of Revelation. It's the number four. And four speaks of something to do with humanity. And it's of the earth, something to do with humanity of the earth. So, so the earth in, in the Bible is described as having four corners. Now, of course, it, it doesn't. It's described as, uh, as having four winds, the four winds out of the four winds of the earth. But this number four speaks of humanity, of earth. And so when we have four living creatures around the throne, we're going to see that each of these creatures have four faces. The number four keeps appearing here. So these creatures have some connection to humanity, some interaction with human beings. These creatures, by the way, are called cherubim. And I know that around Christmas time, people um, give away Christmas cards with, with little little cherubs, often with naked bottoms and, and bow and arrows that, that, that are supposedly cherubims. What you're about to see here in, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 7, is nothing like these Christmas card cherubims. Nothing like it at all. I think sometimes they, they appear on uh, wedding uh, cards and cakes and things like this. These cherubim are, are pretty heavy-duty guys. In, in one sense, just as uh, the emperors of the day had their praetorian guard and they had the, the four uh, Praetorian guards that would that would guard the the emperor. The, these Praetorian, the the four special ones. The, these these four living creatures with four faces. These are like the the secret service. These are like the 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 military grade guardians of the very presence of God. And we we read in verse seven and see if we can we can pick up this picture. The first living creature 
like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Hmm. We we read the same picture of these creatures, these cherubim, in Ezekiel one ten, and it tells us that not only did they look like a lion and the other like an ox and another like a man and, and another like an eagle or the face of an eagle. But Ezekiel one ten says this, As for their likeness or the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. And so the these are not random things. Again, we've got uh, Old Testament language being used in the book of Revelation to describe these creatures. These four living creatures in 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 a very real way, each of their faces reflect an aspect of the work of Christ, the ultimate leader, the ultimate connection between God and man. The first face of the four living creatures, a lion, reflects Christ as the Messiah, the King. He's called in the Old Testament the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And of course, when C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he depicted the Christ character as being like a lion, Aslan, the lion, who is a direct Uh, takes a direct picture from the Old Testament where Christ was described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The second face of the four living creatures is an ox. And an ox, of course, is a a worker. It, it, It represents that which is a sacrificial worker. Because, of course, oxes were also used as sacrifices in the Old Testament as well. But the ox would pull the plow. The ox would do the heavy lifting. The ox, as far as pulling and and so on, the heavy work, the hard work. And Christ was the one whose work ultimately and ultimately leading to his work on the cross as as our sacrifice. This reflects Christ as the sacrificial worker, the one who's done all the work for our salvation. The third face of the four living creatures was the face of a man. And it shows the compassion of Christ. And, and this, this reflects that Christ became incarnate. That is, he became flesh. He became a man. The fourth face of the four living creatures is an eagle. And this eagle reflects God. Eagles, well, I get to see eagles flying over the Tamar River just near where I live. I live about 120 meters away from the Tamar River, and I can see it from my lounge room, and 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 sometimes just because of the way the 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 air corridor happens, I see eagles just soaring over the Tamar River, and they're majestic creatures, and 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 an eagle has a is is a symbolic picture in Scripture of divinity. It reflects God, and here these creatures are reflecting an aspect of Christ as the majestic, eternal, omnipotent, uh, all-knowing, omnipresent God. And so we have these four faces of the four creatures, 
in each way reflecting an aspect of Christ. It goes on in Revelation 4 verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you. Oh, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What a glorious picture of worship. See, this glimpse of heaven is not so much describing the color of the wallpaper. It's describing the activity of what is happening in heaven and its central character. And its central character is God. What we're seeing here is this glorious picture of worship. Heaven is filled with worship, with the most extravagant, the most glorious, the most beautiful music and singing taking place anywhere in the universe. And it is all ascribing worship to God. As we've heard tonight, the book of Revelation paints a glorious picture of Christ and what he was able to achieve by his atoning work. The picture of heaven as a place of perfect peace, joy and rest must have been a great comfort to the early Christians mourning the loss of family and friends. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Understanding Revelation Part 3 from our online store. More on Revelation next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you tune in again next week for another Finding Truth Matters.